Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The youngest said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together. All he had set off for a distant country, and they squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him, he gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and was and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and help us to understand and also live according to his word. I titled the sermon of this morning, Saved into Eternity. With Second Samuel chapter 11 and Luke 15 that we've just read in the, in the background, uh, the subtitle is The Perseverance of the Saints. When I say that, it means basically how God in his mercy hold us in his hand till the end some years ago the Australian league football player Andrew Johns admitted that he had been using drugs for 10 years prior to his retirement from the sport he was the former captain of the kangaroos and he had eluded the net of the drug testing and had been heralded as the biggest and the most talented of footy players in that uh, uh, code of all times. Now he was pictured as a fool and as a discredit to the, uh, to the game. It was both a shock and a disgrace. 
in an interview he said my past 10 or 12 years has been like a fairy tale I have been also lucky and I've experienced so much but I think about some of the great times I've had and they've just been destroyed because I've taken drugs I had so many close calls and you think about the humiliation you put on yourself and your family but it wasn't until you're on the front of the paper I haven't slept in days I haven't eaten I just can't describe how bad I feel sitting here this morning people called for him to be stripped of the medals and other of his accolades one person wrote to the nine network and he said don't glamorize drugs in sport kick them out if they disgrace the league or any other sport no second chances if caught once out the gate and don't admit them to another sport they are role models for our children and grandchildren don't give them a second chance now when this sort of scandal strikes a sporting team it takes time for that sport to regain the respect in the eyes of the public and when a Christian a prominent Christian then uh, brings disgrace to the church and then is put in the public media we understand that it is a disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ while the church of the Lord hurts and it takes a long time of convincing so that there will be a restoration it is a shame on the name of our Lord and our Savior and it brings a lot of good meaning Christians in disrepute so what do you say to people when they refer to a minister of the gospel who as we heard in the papers not so long ago who was caught with more than 60,000 images of child pornography on his computer. What is your answer when people refer to the scriptures and remind you of the story of a king, a major figure in the history of Israel who was a liar, who was an adulterer, who was a murderer, and there are many other things in that chapter as we read it this morning, because let's face it, that's what David was in his dealings with Bathsheba and Uriah. You weep in your heart and you intercede for the corporate sin of the people of God. You plead with God to show mercy and take away the pain in your heart and the hearts of his people. You beg for mercy to not become as those who point a finger and condemn the sinner while in the same time you ask that God may grant his grace that while sin cannot uh, be covered up to protect people he would lead would guide and direct so that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will have the victory and the sinner will find forgiveness and once again have peace and the knowledge that his or her sin is forgiven and that the righteousness of Christ be imputed through the work of the Holy Spirit now with having said that I'm not going to one specific verse in the, the chapters we read this morning. But with the scandalous history of David and the grace of God upon the sinner, 
who seeks redemption in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the parable of the prodigal son, who in spite of squandering away his inheritance, repented and returned to his father's house, only to be received back by his father as his own son. I want to take you to the wonderful truths of the gospel as summarized in the last chapter of what is known the Canons of Dort. Now, those of you who don't know what the Canons of Dort is, don't be surprised. It's not something that we in our church know very well. They were framed in 1619, 1618, and the churches got together then in, in, in Dordrecht, in, in Holland, and they had to answer the charges against a certain man with the name Jacob Arminius. Now, Arminius then was one of those who, if I put it this way, you would probably not think that that's what he exactly said, but that's what he meant. He said, we are not as sinful as people would make us to be. Which he then put in another way. He says this. He says, there is a way that we can help ourselves with the grace of God, but the point is we need to do it to be saved. Whereas, as the Bible teaches us, the Bible says there's nothing we can do, not even 1%, to save ourselves. Arminius and those who followed him said, no, it's not that bad. There is something we can do, and there is something we must do. And therefore, out of this teaching, it is now uh, known as Armenianism. Now, Armenianism, unfortunately, I don't have the time to, to exactly describe to you this, this heresy. But Armenianism is something that is running rampant in our churches today, even those who call themselves Calvinist churches. Because it puts the emphasis not on what God does, but it puts the emphasis on what we need to do. Now, the moment we understand that we are saved by grace and grace only, we understand that God saves us and when God does a job, that's what the Bible says, God does not do a job halfway. You get the point? In other words, when God saves us, He saves us and He holds us in His hands, He perseveres, perseveres us till the end. And that to me, my dear brother and sister, that to you should be an enormous, an enormous source of, of encouragement that you are in the hands of God and God holds you in his hand and he protects you for time and eternity because the point is this if God would allow or God would ask of me to bring 1% only 1% some say actually 50% now I don't know how they get to the 50% but God does you. God takes you there halfway. You have to bring the other half. Now, I don't see that in the scripture. But point is, let's just just take this back to one percent. 
will I ever, will you have ever peace in your mind that the 1% that you brought to it was good enough? And if you, if you start doubting that, it will erode your spiritual life to a life of he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And you will never, never have assurance of your faith. We then contend that man can indeed be sure of salvation. That forgiveness and righteousness is not of man. And that man is saved by grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. And we, and we still, and, and, and uh, we, we can say and preach this today that God calls us to be his children and that he saves us from our sin. And that he holds us till the last day. More even, what do we make of it when we evaluate our personal life in the Lord and are then convinced by the Holy Spirit of the gaping holes of disobedience and unholiness? Because let's face it, there are corners in our hearts where we keep the darkest secrets only known to us and God, which can make us cringe before the holiness of God and in the light of the gospel message and the hope of Jesus Christ. Now we stand before this reality. God holds us in his hand. He's granted us salvation in Jesus Christ. And we look at our own life and we see that, look, we fall, we fall short. Then it takes us to a statement out of that paragraph in that uh, canons of thought. Those people whom God, according to his purpose, calls into the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and whom he regenerates by his Holy Spirit, he also sets free from the reign and the slavery of sin, though in this life not entirely from the flesh and from the body of sin. We learn from this statement that it is in principle because of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross, because of his resurrection and his intercession before the throne of God, Christians are called by God and are made to be his children because they are regenerated or born again by the Holy Spirit. Sin does not reign over them anymore because they do not belong to Satan anymore, but to God who in Christ forgive their sins. But the point is, while we live on this face of this earth, now being made children of God, we still struggle with sin. And therefore, the next article of this chapter teach that in our struggle with sin, by the power of Jesus Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit, we must humble ourselves before God. We must flee away from sins and temptations and run for refuge to Christ. He is our hiding place and our strength and our rock and our righteousness. With Him and with Him alone we find the only place and for safety against the attacks of Satan who wants to devour us like a wounded lion. We have to constantly put to death our flesh with its earthly desires to gratify itself. This is possible when we are diligent in doing the following. And therefore, some people think, oh, it's, it's easy. You get saved, you put your hand up, you walk 
to the front and you put your hand up, you get a little card and you go out and you're a Christian for, forever because that's, that's what the Bible says. Well, that's what the Bible says, but the Bible also says that we have to rely on the Holy Spirit and we are now engaged in a battle against evil. We need to become spiritually fit through spiritual exercise. We need to grow and deliberately seek godliness. This calls us to exercise like the long-distance runner who puts strain on his body in order to become fit so that he can resist the idea of giving up when he becomes tired halfway into this race. It is with discipline that we have to reach out to, to the winning line and strive to become more like our Savior day by day. This is what the Bible refers to as sanctification and holiness. Whilst it is true that we are saved by grace, and whilst it is true that not our good works can save us, and whilst it's true that one day when we enter the glory of God, only because He called us, all these things are true, it does not give us an excuse to be spiritually lazy, spiritually unhealthy, and spiritually careless. On the contrary, it is only when we really understand the depth of the grace of God rescuing us from the certainty of hell by taking us out of sin, out of the slimy pit, and He put us in His kingdom to become part of His family that we will want to glorify Him. A careless, spiritually unhealthy and lazy Christian is not sensitive to the bidding of the master who saved him and made him his child and is therefore a contradiction in terms. This daily and constant desire to become what God wants us to be in Christ does not come to an end before we enter our eternal home. That is what we walk with the Lord. We walk with Him in obedience. We want to do His will and we commit to Him. But what happens when we stumble and fall? Because of these, and I quote it once again from the Canons of Dort, because of these remnants of sin dwelling in, in us, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in His grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. What happens when the child of God starts depending on his own strength and starts flirting with sin, being led by the desires of his flesh when he gives in and he falls? What happened to the Matthew John's Christians? We know them. And let's be honest, sometimes we walk a very thin line and maybe we just escape the drug tests. This then is the call to constantly watch and pray that we may not be led into temptation 
Isn't that what the Lord said to us in his prayer? Lead us not into temptation. When we fail to do this, not only can we be carried away by the flesh, the world and Satan into sins, and sometimes even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission. And some would say that's impossible, but sometimes it happens. Like in the life of David, God allows it to happen. Living away from God and continuing in the hardness of heart, the child of God offends him, deserves the sentence of death, grieves the Holy Spirit, suspends the exercise of faith, and severely wound the conscience and sometimes loses the awareness of grace for a time. David is an example. How, how in our day and age a king would get away with something like this, you don't know. But it must have been at least for a year, a year and a half, that David lived in sin. Without repentance for, before the Lord. And reflecting on this period in his life, he writes in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Until, and this is where the parable of the prodigal son comes in, describing the wonderful, unfailing love, the grace and the mercy of the Father, until we return and genuinely repent, God's fatherly face shines upon us again. Then we realize and then we were far off, enjoying what the world can offer us, ending up with nothing but a wasting of our bones and our flesh and with a drought in our soul. Under us, the hand of God calls us to himself. My dear friend in Jesus Christ, it is this amazing grace of God we marvel and awe in awe about. It is here that we become speechless in the sight of God's holiness. It is here where we leave our wisdom and excuses. It is here where we own up and confess our sins and turn away from the world. It is that wonderful gospel of grace that we shatter in pieces and surrender our life to God. It is here where we learn to forgive as the Father forgives us. It is here where we don't go away <clears throat> and point fingers. It is from this point that we learn what it means to go out and pick up. It is because of the grace of sinners that we can look at the judging and the accusing world 
and not boast in ourselves but in Christ. I saw a banner in front of a church one day and I might quote it wrongly and it says this is not the home of holy people this is the home of saved sinners this is what we are we're not here because we're good you know what I think we need to tell one another over and over again we're here because God in his mercy took us out of the slimy pit of sin because we were so bad and maybe we should learn what it means to say I've been there too if people would point fingers to people in the church and say this is what they do you see you call yourself Christians so you, you do that and you do that and say well that's me, but for the grace of God. Yeah. Yeah, we are a bunch of people that might, we might surprise you how bad we are. But we're on the way. We are growing by the grace of God. And then we can say to the world, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world might start and continue to condemn. In Christ Jesus, God does not condemn. For by his word and spirit, God certainly and most definitely renews the fallen sinner to repentance so that they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins they've committed. And then they start seeking God and His mercy. And you know what? They find it. They find it. Like the lost son. He was willing to go to his father and say, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. But before he could say this, his father said, put a ring on his finger. What does that mean? You are my son. He's come back. He was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but he's found. It's not by our own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy that we forfeit neither faith nor the grace totally. It is ultimately not because we feel, feel sorry or by our own deeds that we repent. It is not because of our downfalls uh, that we become totally lost. It uh, if that was the case, we would have been undoubtedly lost. That's the horrible consequence of the theology of Armenianism. If Armenianism is true, when you fall, you're out. The gospel of grace is, it hurts God when we sin. But he picks up those who have sinned. I just want to conclude to you on the interview that I read that David Gallup had 
David is the chief of the NRL. With Andrew Jones, he said, Look, he's achieved so much in the game. No doubt he's damaged his reputation, but hopefully it's a watershed moment for him, an opportunity for him to get things back on track, and we obviously want to help him make sure he's part of, of, of the, uh, the rugby league for many years to come. We won't abandon him. But this is not what God says. God does not say, well, I hope you've learned. Try your hardest. Get up and come back. God says, what we've done in sin is the disgrace of his, for his name. And then he sent his son. And he took on him our sins. The watershed in our lives is not our failures out of which we have to try to get out with, a, with, a, with less possible damage. The watershed in our life is the cross of Jesus Christ. God does not help us to help ourselves. He helps us because we can't help ourselves. That's the point. That is why he gave us his son. We are saved. If you come to him, and through repentance, fully relying on the cross of Jesus only, be sure he holds you in the hollow of his hand forever. Let us pray. Our Lord and our Father, we will not, never understand grace. But you don't demand of us to understand that. You just ask of us to accept that. And so we accept that this morning. Father, help us to fight against sin. Help us to not just give up even when we fall but help us to look up to Jesus Christ and we thank you for the promise of your word and the reality of salvation in Christ Jesus Amen